So Money Episode 901, Georgia Lee Hussey, founder of Modernist Financial. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. The dominant culture is telling us a lot of things about what we're supposed to do with our money and our resources. And I like a sort of broader definition of money as just what are our resources? Welcome to So Money, everybody. Our guest today is Georgia Lee Hussey, who is the founder of Modernist Financial. She did not envision having a career in finance. In fact, prior to being a financial advisor, she was a creative artist, and she felt like she wasn't supposed to be good with money, right? You're supposed to be the starving artist. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Today, Georgia is helping her clients manage their financial life with values, with progressive values at that. We're going to dive into what that means, but a little bit more about Georgia. You know, she found herself at one point struggling with a subprime mortgage during the financial crisis, like a lot of us. And that was actually the inspiration for launching her financial planning firm, Modernist Financial, which is on a mission to build a world where progressive people feel permission to enjoy today while also investing in our common future. Modernist Financial has been named one of the largest LGBTQ plus owned businesses in Oregon and one of Portland's largest wealth management firms. Very excited to bring on the show, Georgia Lee Hussey. Georgia Lee Hussey, welcome to So Money. It's been a while since we shared the stage at Goop, in Goop Health. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be talking with you today. And you're based in one of my new favorite cities, Portland. I got the opportunity to visit last winter or I guess fall winter and uh and you chose Portland as your now like place of residence. I have no uh doubts as to why, but uh what were what was your drawing to Portland? Yeah, Portland is a very magical city to me, um, in large part because there's a strong commitment to community engagement and volunteering and being um, of service. Uh, and it's very built into the community. Uh, when I first moved here, right after I graduated from college, I started a little gallery, art gallery in the corner of this warehouse I was working in. And it was amazing, Farnoosh. I spent like seven bucks on uh, flyers at the local uh, Kinko's and we would end up getting like two or 300 people coming to a show. And coming from New York, where that is not how uh, resources work, (laughs) I was amazed by how um, easy it was to become part of the city and to have an impact. So when I was becoming an adult in my late 20s, I realized, you know, I really actually want to be in Portland for, for the rest of my life. Yeah. And and so that's what's one of the things that I found interesting about your background is that while today you're the CEO founder of Modernist Financial, which I want to really dive into because you've got some unique approaches to money, your background is not in money. It's actually in the arts. So tell me a little bit about that world that you um, was sort of your past life, but also I think very much still alive in the work that you do with money. Yes, I uh, was trained um, at Sarah Lawrence College where I went to school. Uh, my focus was on installation sculpture and creative writing. And 
I was uh, working towards being a professional artist. Um, I did my installation work. Uh, I often worked in media that had to do with fire. I'm real into anything that uh, was <laughs> would melt and then become solid again, very alchemical. So I was a glass blower. I was a welder. Um, I was in uh, wax casting, uh, metallurgy, metalwork. Uh, and I really loved the opportunity to express complex ideas in simple, and um, emotionally resonant ways. And same thing with my uh, writing work as well. So I wrote uh, creative nonfiction and, and fiction. And like many people, I had the realization in my mid-20s, I was like, oh, I don't have a trust fund, unlike many of the people that I went to college with. And I don't have financial backing for my family. So the uh, effort, the uh, things that I would have had to give up in order to be a professional artist, I was just not willing to do. But the joy is that I really think being, uh, being trained as an artist has made me an amazing entrepreneur. Because being an artist is incredibly entrepreneurial. We just never call it that. We never call it by its name in our culture. So I definitely lean hard into habits of creativity and visioning. You know, if I am thinking about the business, I'm more likely to go to the art museum than I am to go to a business book. So those things are still alive and well and, and modernist. It's refreshing to hear that because I've had a number of artists on so money and I, a lot of my friends are artists and I actually have a friend who has a podcast for artists to teach them the importance of thinking like a business person, thinking oh, like fine. an entrepreneur, because I think that there is this characterization of artist, artists that you have to sort of be that, um, you know, that, that starving artist, right? That mm. you're, mm. the struggle has to be real because the struggle is what creates beautiful art. I don't know. There is the, there is that mindset trap actually that I think is still uh, relevant and out there, which prevents a lot of otherwise really skilled creative people from becoming financially stable. Absolutely. You know, this is when I really understood the concept of money stories is when I identified for myself that I seem to have this um, polarity or this binary idea of who I could be in relationship to money as a creative person. And that was, I could either be starving in a, um, attic somewhere making art and being creatively whole, or I could be a sellout and be successful. Um, and that I would lose all of my creative integrity. And it's very clear that there was not much of a middle path there, uh, for me, at least in the stories that I had inherited from the culture at large, from, you know, academia, from the arts world in general. And it's either you're Jeff Koons or you're nobody. <laughs> and, um, and the nobody is actually preferable because you're authentic to your creative being. And, None of that story is very helpful to any of us, let no. alone the arts community. So it sounds to me like even at a young age, although, you know, an artist probably not making a ton of money, you had what I, it seems to be a pretty healthy mindset in terms of knowing that there's more out there that you have to be kind of in control in the driver's seat of your own financial life. But it, I understand it was a, a bit of a crisis in your mid to late 20s that actually led you to having a more intense passion relationship with money. Tell us about that quote unquote crisis moment. Yeah. I, um, home ownership is one of the great myths of finance. I believe this idea that we need to buy a home. And then that shows that we are adults that we're financially mature. And I had that lesson in a 
relatively dangerous time, which was the subprime mortgage soon to be crisis. And I bought a house. I basically moved back from New York to Portland was like, all right, I'm going to be in Portland. This is my home. These are my people. This is where I want to start at this next phase of my life. At that point, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to be a professional artist and support myself. So I was also in a searching moment of like, all right, am I going to dig deeper into publishing? You know, where, where was I going to go? And um, so I bought this house because all of my friends were in Portland and buying houses and they seemed, made it seem so easy. And it was really easy. I had, you'll love this furniture. I had a 550 credit score. Oh. I had no savings and I uh, got money back at closing with no down payment. <laughs> um, here's the subprime mortgage crisis. Uh, oh and so luckily I was a person who, or I am a person who, does what they say they're going to do and also had all of the privilege that is required to be able to back that up. Right. So I, I'd always worked in sales to support my art practice. And, um, I realized very quickly that I had this huge mortgage payment every month. I was a single person owning this house and I just started cobbling together how to keep it, keep it all going. And I quickly realized that I had no idea how to budget. And I had not learned those skills in my youth. Like most of us, nobody learns how to do that basic day-to-day -day financial work. And it was definitely a crisis trying to figure out how to pay that bill. Um, and on a sales job where I had irregular income as well. And so I just started learning everything I could from basically blogs, the pre-podcast <laughs> uh, reality of the mid-aughts <laughs> and um, started learning everything I could about how to budget. And then I just started becoming more and more interested and then seeing more and more parallels between personal finance and many of the stories that I had been most compelled by. I mean, my joke is always that Jane Austen is all about crappy estate planning <laughs> and misogyny, um, but, you know, like the, the world I had lived in as an artist and a lover of literature, it's all stories about money and resources and who's included and who's not included. And, um, that's really where the, the interest was born. And then in addition, looking around and realizing that most of the people I cared about, creative folks, queer folks, uh, were not included in the conversation. And we only we weren't only not included, we were intentionally excluded. Um, as a person who shows up with femininity, how, at whatever your gender identity, you're not supposed to be good at money. You're supposed to be good at buying handbags and lipstick. Like we all know the the tired tropes, right? So um, that also got me riled up of this this, I'm not going to let the patriarchy run this particular show because there's too much power here. Yeah, woman. <laughs> so in some ways, the subprime mortgage was a blessing because it really transitioned you into now this world that feels very first nature to you. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I in many situations, I don't know about um, you, but many of my mornings are, are also my celebrations, right? Mm -hmm. And so... I definitely am thankful for the incredible learning opportunity. I was also incredibly lucky to be able to sell that house before the downturn started. I was able to use those proceeds to pay for my CFP education and then fund my career transition. So let's now talk about Modernist Financial, which is your firm, and it is built on a foundation of creativity and collaboration. That's very Georgia. <laughs> um, and that you are really about, when you meet with clients, it's really about figuring out how to align 
wealth values with progressive values, with our progressive Mm -hmm. values. Uh, It seems like this is almost like personal finance 2.0, where a lot of us are just trying to get to 1.0. Like I need to budget. I need to learn how to save. I need to get out of debt. And then I can start thinking about my progressive values and how to align that with my budget and my, my spending. But what do you think? Is that is that actually not true? Or do you think we can do that in uh, at the same time as we're trying to kind of just basically learn the ropes? Yeah, I, I do think we can do it at the same time. Though I have caveats to that, um, you know, for example, sustainable investing or ESG investing is nascent. It's a new part of the investing world, right? So it's not as easy to engage with as just like a Vanguard index fund. Now, Vanguard has sustainability portfolios and index funds now, right? So it is a little easier. Portland is a place that has an incredible uh, cultural value around supporting local businesses. That's actually incredibly impactful in our local economy to make a choice to buy office supplies from a local office company, um, if you can find one, (laughs) versus Amazon. Um, Or buying books, you know, I pay a premium to buy my books at Powell's down the street or other small bookstores. You know, there's a lot of ways to orient our financial lives around the things that we value. You know, we became a B Corp because I don't believe that you have to get successful as a business and then start to do the good, the right thing. Mm-hmm. If anything, I believe that doing the right thing will actually make us more successful in all of the other B Corps um, and other organizations that are really committed to being uh, a force of good in the business indus- business world, not just a force for profit. Not and, that I don't like profit. Right. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Let's be honest. Well, tell me a little bit about the types of clients that that are drawn to you. And for anyone listening, you know, um, what is the best way to get started with your philosophy? Mm -hmm. If you're all the way in Portland, we can't all uh, geographically get to you, although you probably work with online clients. But what are some of the ways that we can uh, sort of adopt some of these principles on our own? Yeah, great question. So we have a ton of resources on our website because our uh, goal is to be able to eventually serve the entire income spectrum. You know, as a firm, we're too small at this point to be able to offer services across all needs. So at this point, we focus on high net worth clients. So our minimum for a new client is a million dollars of investable assets. So, you know, we're not for everyone, but because of that and with our long-term intent to support the whole income spectrum. We have a ton of resources on our website so that people can get access to these ideas and be able to implement them on their own. Um, I think it all starts with just talking about money, as you talk about all the time, right? If we live in a world where money is a closeted topic, where we don't discuss it with our spouse, our children, our family, at work, we're not able to even tease out the meaning that we want to find in money. So I think the the conversations are so important. And we practice something called financial life planning, which really is certified financial planning 2.0, where we're taking all of the ideas around behavioral finance and theories of adult learning and family of origin theory and adding that to all of the information about how much do you need to save and how should you do your cash flow, et cetera, so that people can um, bring both parts of themselves to the conversation. I think oftentimes part of the way that the dominant culture operates is by making money all about the numbers. Mm -hmm. But you know, telling somebody they just need to save more is like telling somebody they just need to lose some weight. 
implying that that's easy. It's not. We're humans trying to make behavioral change, right? So engaging in who we are, what our values are, helps us be more motivated and paint a bigger vision of who we want to be in this, after we've done this work, after we've started this journey. And so, um, the, the resources I mentioned, there's a downloadable toolkit on our website that gives you basically three different tools that we use with our clients to help them understand their relationship with money. Uh, one is about their financial satisfaction in about 24 different areas, including, um, am I satisfied with the way I communicate about money? Am I satisfied with the amount of stress that money creates in my relationships, as well as am I satisfied with my retirement nest egg? Um, there's a life transitions tool because financial planning is basically a bell curve in which we plot different transitions out on that bell curve of our lives. And we're going to retire. We might need to care for our family um, and our parents. If you have kids, sending them to school, you know, all the various goals we have, those transitions are really important to sort of visualize on a uh, timeline mm-hmm. ahead of us, uh, which is not easy for humans to do. We are short-term thinkers. And right? it's abstract, you know. we Super abstract. What's that? Well, what is retirement? Am I going to retire? What? A, mm-hmm. You know, they, there was a study that found that if you age render your face uh, digitally online to look like you might look in your 80s, you will actually save more for that person. It's actually mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. Um, a catalyst for saving more for retirement because it's now something that you can really see. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's one of the reasons I love advanced style. I don't know if you know that street fashion blog. Um, it's all about fabulous older people in urban areas and their fashion. Oh. <laughs> and I, I always look at that as a way to sort of think about my future self. I'm like, okay, what does 75 <laughs> year old Georgia Lee Hussey want? She wants nice clothes good food, a fabulous neighborhood and place that she gets to live. She wants to be able to walk everywhere. You know, she wants to be able to have the ability to walk everywhere. So, you know, visioning, as you're saying, visioning who that 75 year old or 90 year old self is helps me make better choices today when I'm like, do I want to go on another trip or do I want to fully fund my Roth IRA? Ability to walk everywhere is an important distinction, right? That that implies right. you want to start investing in your health and making sure you have the right insurances in place. All right, let's talk about our childhood. I know that when we were together at InGoop Health, part of what we discussed with our workshop attendees was our personal money stories, because often those are the the seedlings for how we end up evolving as people who have with financial relationships with actual, you know, um, thoughts and feelings around money. So going back in time, Georgia, what's a, what's a money experience from childhood that has impacted you as an, as an adult? You know, it's an, it's this, the answer to this question changes over time, which I found really interesting. Um, and recently I've been thinking a lot about the all girls Catholic school that I went to. Um, I was not Catholic, but it was the best school that our family could afford for my education. And, um, at that time, the, uh, uh, sisters were a diminishing population. There were almost no novices coming into the work. And, <clears throat> As I've become an adult, I've developed a, a practice of Zen Buddhism and I spend, I try and, and maintain my meditation practice. And part of my personal care is do, going to quarterly meditation, silent meditation retreats. And I realized that the kernel of that was really, um, that seed was planted when I was 
basically first grade through 12th grade of watching these nuns with this commitment to educating young women. Um, and I would not have answered that three or four years ago, Farnoosh, but I'm, I'm realizing how much inspiration I have hmm. from this group of people commit and also committed to social justice because there are some extremely left radical progressive um, sisters in America. <laughs> I love um, that. Yeah. Sounds like a book or something. Yeah. And they're doing some incredible work around sustainability investing and they are badasses. I mean, they will hold a, they will hold a major position in a company and then hold the CEO to the fire around their behavior. And it's real hard to tell a sister that you don't, aren't going to listen to what they have to say um, as a CEO. So I, I've been thinking a lot about what it means to build intentional community, what it means to have a life's work um, and a vow uh, that doesn't necessarily mean a religious vow, but a, a, for me, you know, a vow to do well in the world, to, to make the, hopefully support the world in becoming a better place in the work that I do on a daily basis in the work that the firm does. So, um, and they were happy as a, as a community, you know, they had each other, they didn't have a whole lot of stuff, but I think there's a great wisdom in, in that concept which leads into my sort of meta life question right now for myself. And I think the world at large is, you know, what is enough? Mm-hmm. What is enough? How do we define that for ourselves? They had defined that. Now they had a structure to help them do so. But how do I define that for myself as a woman who also really likes, you know, beautiful clothes and nice <laughs> shoes and great food? <laughs> so I love hearing that. I love hearing that from you because you're, you know, you're, you're exemplifying that you, you don't have to choose sides, right? You don't have to choose a minimalist, um, you know, Buddhist lifestyle and, and, or, you know, or just go the like complete material route that there's a, there's a hybrid version. Right, right. And that hybrid version is your version, right? And that's Mm -hmm. the work that we do with clients is helping them as individuals, as couples, as families really define what is important for them so they can make choices that make sense for them. Because the dominant culture is telling us a lot of things about what we're supposed to do with our money and our resources. And I like a sort of broader definition of money as just what are our resources? Money is certainly one of them. But Time is it, as you and I know, is a huge resource, right? And one that you just have less of at certain portions of your life. Um, and social capital is an incredible resource. And defining for ourselves what enough is in those different areas of our, you know, our asset classes <laughs> is a really important is really important work. And I think ultimately drives better decisions, so that it's easy to take a slightly more um, cumbersome route to buying that uh, printer paper or that new book you want. If you are clear about why this aligns with who you are um, or how you invest your portfolio or how you do your tax planning, right? Because there's there's big ways in which the uh, financial planning work we do really pushes back against progressive political values. So I think it requires that um, consciousness mm-hmm. uh, and verbalizing so we can lean into that those beliefs and that clarity in moments of decision making. Right. Just be more intentional. Right. Right. Exactly. And it's not easy to be intentional around money because a lot of us have anxiety right. around money. And so creating a sense of ease is also an important an important element there. So a little uh, bit of a par- departure here, but wanted to ask you a question given that it's summertime and 
We want to know how people are spending their time this summer. And for guests, our question here is in partnership with our sponsor, Chase. We want to know what's one way that you love to save or splurge when you travel? Mm. Um, well, I just got back from a three and a half week vacation. <laughs> no way. Who for takes real. a three and a half week vacation? I, I so envy you. Well, a crazy lunatic CEO who should not have done that, but it was really great. Um, but it was my 40th birthday and I oh, really okay. to celebrate. You know so, what? I'm giving myself a four-day weekend for my 40th birthday. I think I'm doing 40 wrong. You darling, up that, up that time. Up that by, <laughs> at a zero. to the number of days. Um, so, you know, I um, – I have never done a trip like this that was this um, full and um, full of the things I actually wanted to do. So I we put aside a certain part of our budget uh, for tours, for personal tours. And we were in Venice and like Como and London. And in Venice, we had some amazing tour guides. And I realized that for me, when I'm traveling, having context is super important for me to be able to enjoy the space I'm in because otherwise I feel like I'm just seeing yes. things, but I don't know why. And I don't know what it means. Um, so for example, we did uh, a tour of the Jewish ghetto in um, Venice, which is, I don't know if you know, was the first um, urban planned segregation of people into a separate space. Um, and I had, knew, I knew about this from my queer architecture class at Sarah Lawrence, cause that's how they, we do. Um, and I, we, so we had this tour and it was so fascinating for Nush cause this was also where banking was started in this little tiny, like literally, I don't know. It took us three minutes to walk across the, the, the main portion of the ghetto. And so we saw the Banco Rosso, which is so when you say that you're in the red, it was because oh, you're the what? Banco Rosso, which was from like the 1500s, was saying that you were out of money. <laughs> um, so, you know, I could have, we could have just walked through the ghetto and like, oh, that looks like it might be a synagogue or that looks like it might be a worship or that looks old. Oh, oh. <laughs> um, having a, a expert there to help us understand was super helpful and made the whole thing a much richer experience. In the red, Banco Rosso. Was that Venice, you said? Yeah, in Venice. Yeah. If you look up the Jewish ghetto and the history of banking, the whole area is fascinating. Interesting. Um, I've been to Venice. Didn't get that education. <laughs> yeah, it's an overwhelming place. It is. And like sinking, right? Yes. Well, hopefully that maybe they'll figure some stuff out because I feel like a lot of the rest of us are going to have to figure out how not to how not to sink either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I want to spend a little bit of time, just a little bit of time um, before we wrap, because I think it would be important to address um, your uh, maybe advice or feedback for people who are in the queer community who want to get resources and help around their money. And because we talked earlier and you mentioned that there really isn't a ton for this population and in some ways it's like intentional. And so I want to, I want to dedicate a little bit of time to talking about that. Yeah. Well, I think from from my in my experience, I use a filter to look at the information that I get from the world around me, right? When I'm learning, I have to realize who is teaching me. And so unfortunately, until you know, women, queer people, and people of color are running the financial world, we need to use the resources that we have available to us, right? So I think for me, it's about, um, and a lot of the people I know, it's about filtering what we're hearing through the speaker's reality. 
Um, and that can mean things like uh, realizing that ideas of saving and investing, um, the core concepts can be very helpful, but maybe going to a more aligned source for deeper insight. Um, so, you know, again, we have a ton of resources on our, our website, uh, but I would say that conversation can help us take those resources and make them ours. And um, as we would say in the community, queer, queer, the, that financial education or that, fi that personal finance. Um, so I would say that's my, my, my main takeaway is to do the work, but do it in community. So you can have the accountability support, but you can also question, you know, is this a misogynistic comment? Is this a cisgendered comment? And, you know, and they often are. There's there's a lot of subtext in the financial world around who who has access and who doesn't. Um, and I think the queer community is important, but I'm actually far more concerned about intersectional um, access. Um, and I know you've done a bunch of stuff around interviewing folks who are making financial knowledge for communities of color. And that to me is the even more concerning element um, because you know, I don't know if you know, but like around inheritance, a lot of our clients are inheritors and 41% of white college educated families will receive a significant inheritance, an average of $150,000. Wow. Whereas 13% of college educated black families will get a significant inheritance, but the average figure for them is $40,000. Mm -hmm. Now that is really a reflection of historical um, and racial money stories and policies and institutions. So like when the FHA came in and created mortgages in the 1930s, basically invented the 30 year mortgage that allowed white people to create this inheritance. People of color were systematically excluded from those mortgages because of redlining. So white families got real estate at super low interest rates and watched that value grow over years while people of color missed out on this period of wealth, which wasn't allowed to compound either throughout the 20th century. So I'm definitely concerned about, uh, yeah. about queer people, but I am far more concerned about people of color. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. Well, mm -hmm. I want to mention your website, of course, modernistfinancial.com. So many resources on your website. There's a modernist money toolkit. You're, you're doing some really important work. Georgia. And I really appreciate you coming on the show and giving us some context. I'm all about the context too. Next time it's all about the tours. Yeah. No more meandering around Venice. Nope. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's good too though. <laughs> yeah. Maybe save a day or day for that. Georgia, thank you so much. Wishing you all the best and have a great summer. Thank you. You too. Have a wonderful 40th. Thanks to Georgia for joining us. For her Modernist Money Toolkit, go to modernistuniversity.com slash modernist dash toolkit. And if you want to join her newsletter, go to modernistfinancial.com slash newsletter. All these links are at somoneypodcast.com as well as where you can find Georgia and Modernist Financial on social media. And if you want to get this episode and the transcript, go to somoneypodcast.com. You can grab it there. And also leave me a question for the Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh. You can also do that on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your day is so money. <laughs>